It's Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be back in your company after a short break. Wonderful to be able to talk to you on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg. Yes, a little rainy around, but um, we could do with the rain and wonderful to be able to share some thoughts with you on Judaism 101.9. We've often taken a look at, and I thought that to ease ourselves back into our regular programming, we would uh, do something a little bit different today, and uh, that is to explore some of the things that have happened in history on these particular dates. We have sometimes gone down this path, but perhaps today I'd like to read a couple of stories to you. Um, yeah, unique experience here. Uh, I'm uh, going to read you not some bedtime stories, but hopefully some afternoon wake-up stories, um, and uh, particularly one that has a relevance first up to today. Today is the 22nd day of Tevet, or the 22nd day of Tevis. And if we're going to go back in Jewish history to 1623, of the common era. So yes, um, what is that? Uh, 500 years ago, more or less, getting uh, getting on to close to 500 years, I, I suppose. Um, <coughs> no, what's my mathematics? Sorry, uh, 400 years. 400 years ago, we are going to position ourselves in Poland and an amazing, amazing story of what happened on the 22nd day of Tavis in 1623. This story is written by a well-known Jewish author called Gershon Kranzler, and he writes the story particularly, I suppose, for children. But uh, I don't know about you, I love uh, kids' stories, especially when they are full of meaning and nuance and uh, uh, kind of uh, history of our people. And so here goes. I'm going to read you a story by Gershon Kranzler, and it's called Purim of the Curtains. Now, we've all heard about Purim. I don't know if most of us or many of us have heard about Purim of the Curtains. So here goes. You probably think I'm joking, and the relationship between Purim and Curtains goes no further than a Purim joke. Well, you're wrong. There was really a Purim of the Curtains, originally called Purim Forhang. And like the first Purim of Shushan and the other local Purims celebrated in different countries, it commemorates the miraculous salvation of a Jewish community from the hands of their enemies. Purim of the Curtains used to be celebrated in the middle of the winter, on the 22nd of Tavis, today, two months before our regular Purim. Its story happened more than 300 years ago, in the once famous large Jewish ghetto of Prague in Bohemia, now the Czech Republic. As far as we know, this is how it originated. Rudolf of Wenceslav, the governor of Bohemia, was one of those who resented the rise of Jewish fortunes during the reign of Ferdinand II. He considered it a personal affront when a man like the wealthy Jacob Schmilles of the Prague ghetto was knighted and bore the noble title of Basevi von Trojenberg. But there was little he could do to the Jews of Prague, who in those days counted more than a thousand people, many of them rich, 
influential merchants and bankers. For the memory and influence of the chief rabbi, Yehuda Lowy, famous as the Maharal, was still felt among Jews and non-Jews. Thus, despite all efforts, the governor was not able to provoke any riots or pogroms of major proportion. But one day, in the winter of 5383-1623, Providence really seemed to play into his hand. Among the treasures of his palace were heavy gold brocade curtains, artfully woven by a famous medieval master weaver from Brussels. They were considered invaluable, and the governor was responsible to the crown for them. All through the spring, summer and fall, till the middle of winter, they were stored away so that the sun and dust would not harm their precious texture. December came, and uh, Chamberlain Hradek, next to Rudolf of Wenceslav, the mightiest man in all of Bohemia, gave orders to have all the velvet and brocade curtains and the Persian carpets taken out of storage to prepare the palace for the festival season. Everything proceeded in proper order, for each piece of the precious ornaments and furnishings had been carefully recorded and systematically stored away. At the bottom of the list were the famous gold brocade curtains of the state room. As usual, they had been placed in the huge iron chest in the cellar that held the most valuable articles of the palace. The important day came when Hradek himself went down into the cellar to make sure that the servants treated the precious materials carefully. The heavy iron lid of the chest was opened and the yellow gold of the candle showed. Could it be possible? Nothing but the bare brown wood of the cedar-lined iron chest. Everyone present gasped, and a cry of horror passed from the cellar through the hundreds of halls and rooms of the palace, right up to the battlements of the watchtower. Soon the governor himself heard the shocking news of the missing gold curtains, and he ordered an immediate investigation. No one was permitted to leave or to enter the palace. Raging like a furious lion, Rudolf of Wenceslav questioned every one of the employees, from the chamberlain down to the lowest cleaning woman, but to no avail. They all staunchly denied any knowledge of or connection with the theft of the precious curtains. If they're not back here by tonight, roared the governor at the frightened servants who were gathered in his office, I'll have all of you thrown into prison. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that he really meant it. After a few minutes of heavy silence, interrupted only by the furious pacing of the governor from one corner of the huge office to the other, and the violent rapping of his riding crop against his boots, the chamberlain suggested that the governor order all of the city's pawn shops and warehouses searched by his soldiers. If your honor permits, I'd suggest keeping a special eye on the stores and the shops of the Jewish dealers. They have a liking for stolen merchandise, Hradek added maliciously. Rudolf of Wenceslav was highly pleased with the evidence and the advice of his chamberlain, and shortly afterwards troops of his soldiers combed every store and shop of Prague that might possibly hide the golden curtains. They sealed off the ghetto, and without telling anyone of the object of their search, they turned every house inside out in futile search 
and vengeful destruction. One troop of soldiers came also to the large house and store of Enoch Achur, who was one of the patrician leaders of the of the Prague and a scholar as well as a wealthy merchant. Without care or consideration, the rough soldiers searched every closet, chest and drawer and threw their contents all over the floor in wild disorder. Unable to find what they were looking for, they put a pistol to the chest of Enoch Achur and threatened to shoot him if it did not reveal where he'd hidden the most precious merchandise. Rather than risk his life, Enoch opened the secret vault in the back of his store. Among other precious goods stored in the wooden plain, in the plain wooden chair closet, behind the wall covering, soldiers came upon a pile of heavy glittering materials. With a hoarse cry of fury and satisfaction, the soldiers pounced upon the old mer- merchant, beat him and shackled him with heavy iron chains. We'll be back with you for the rest of the story right after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. And we were busy with the story of Purim of the Curtains, which took place on the 22nd of Tavis. Yes, 1623 on this very day. And we were up to the part of the story where the curtains had been found in the possession of Enoch Altschul. The story of the theft and of the search spread like wildfire and brought out every citizen into the street of Prague. At the point of their sabers, the soldiers led Enoch Altschul through the silent and shocked crowds of the ghetto and then through the wildly shouting crowds outside the ghetto. One glance at the open chest with the brocade curtains told the story. And before his guilt had been proven, Enoch was given the vilest treatment ever accorded any common thief or criminal in public. As the procession left the ghetto, the guards immediately closed the chest, for there was no telling what the wild mob would do. Governor Rudolph of Wenceslav was still furiously pacing the floor of his office when the soldiers brought in Enoch Altschul. The sight of the recovered curtains soothed his anger. Yet he was even more pleased by the sight of the patriarchal Jew led before him in heavy chains. At once he realized that here was the opportunity for which he had been waiting ever since he'd been appointed to the governorship to humiliate the Jewish merchants and courtiers and to do some looting among the treasure of the ghetto for his own and his people's pockets. Outwardly, Rudolf kept up his rage as he shouted all kinds of vile insults at Enoch Altschul. The old Jew faced him quietly. His inner dignity served only to increase the governor's rage, but neither by insults nor by vicious slaps with the riding crop was Rudolf of Wenceslav able to make the old Jew betray how he had come into possession of the precious golden curtains from the governor's palace. I gave my word of honor to a most noble member of your of your court. Unless he himself grants me permission, I'm not able to explain the presence of these curtains in my house, Enoch replied firmly. You thief, you have no honor, nor does your word hold any value. You're only trying to save your hide, but never mind. We shall see whether the whip can't make you talk. Torture and flogging. 
were not able to break the will of Inochalchul. Towards evening, he was again brought lying on a stretcher before the governor. Are you now ready to tell me who gave you the curtains? The governor shouted at the limp figure. Too weak to answer, the old merchant merely shook his head feebly. You have some time till tomorrow morning. If you don't talk by nine o'clock, not only will you and your family hang from the highest tree that can be found in all of Prague, but my people will be given permission to storm the ghetto. For the first time since being seized, Enoch Alchul lost his calm. No longer was he staking only his own life on his word of honor. The horrible meaning of the governor's threat was obvious, and it shook his determination. All through the night, he tossed back and forth on his hard bed in the dark cell of the palace, palace dungeon, his tortured body wrecked by pain. His was a terrible responsibility. Desperately, Enoch Altschul implored God for help and guidance. Was it more important to keep his oath to the man who had brought him the ill-fated curtains, despite the fact that he had now pretended not to notice him when he saw him carried before the governor? Or was the fate of the community too vital to be risked by his, Enoch's, personal code of honor? Towards morning, he fell into a restless sleep. Suddenly, the cell seemed illuminated. The image of his beloved teacher and friend, the sainted Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, appeared before him and assured him that everything would turn out well in the end. Although he awoke immediately afterwards, Enoch felt deeply strengthened and encouraged by his dream. All the time, until the gods came to take him before the governor, he kept on praying to Hashem for his help. As soon as he soon was to find out, though, he had not been the only one who had been unable to sleep that night, and to whom his master had also appeared in a dream. Rudolf of Wenceslav was impatiently wrapping his riding crop on the top of his desk, when Enoch was carried into the state room before the fully assembled court. Despite the tortures of the previous day, the old Jew looked calm and collected. Without a word, the governor sing signaled to have Enoch carried to the large plaza crowded with hundreds of heavily armed soldiers. About them milled a huge crowd of wildly shouting people, all seemingly waiting for something to happen. At a signal from this window, they will break into every house of the ghetto, announced Rudolf of Wenceslav. Yet before Enoch had a chance to speak, a Charadek, the haughty chamberlain who came up with the plan of searching the Jewish homes in the first place, threw himself between the governor and the Jewish, Jewish merchant, his face as white as snow. He called excitedly to the astonished Rudolf, Mercy, your honor, mercy. I am the guilty one. Punish me, not this noble old man who thinks he's protecting you or your own personal honor. The governor and the entire court were shocked by the confession of the chamberlain. Incredulously, they listened to his tale. Several months ago, I was in urgent need of 25,000 ducats which I'd lost in a night of heavy gambling. I could not think of any other way to pay this debt than by taking the precious gold brocade curtains from the palace chest and pawning them to the venerable Enoch Altschul, 
who has helped me in many a tight spot. In order to protect myself, I wrote a note in your name, signed and sealed with your seal. In it, I had you ask for the money and promise kind treatment for the Jews of Prague if no one found out about this transaction. At the same time, the note threatened that if Enoch betrayed the secret to any person in the world, the entire ghetto would be severely punished. Not satisfied with the note, I had Enoch swear personally by his God and his honor to guard the secret as his life for the sake of your reputation and political career. When you questioned us, continued Charadek, I advised you to have all the Jewish stores and homes searched because I knew your soldiers would recover the brocade curtains. I knew that you would not play long with the Jewish merchant in whose possession they were found and that I could count on Enoch not to break his word of honor under any circumstances. Thus, both you and I would be helped. I almost succeeded. But during this past night, I had a terrifying vision. After hours of trying vainly to quiet my guilty conscience, I fell asleep. In my dream, the famous leader of the ghetto, whom they called the chief rabbi Loi, who died several years ago, appeared to me. He was accompanied by that terrifying monster of clay, the golem, feared by all the citizens of Prague. No one who dared to accuse an innocent Jew of a crime ever lived to escape the golem's crushing fingers. The voice of the old rabbi said quietly, You had better tell the truth tomorrow. Shaken by fever and fear, I could hardly wait for the dawn of the morning and for the hour when you had the Jew brought before you to confess my guilt in public. As he spoke, the Chamberlain's hands were constantly fumbling with the collar of his coat at his throat, as if to free himself from someone's clutches. After he had finished the tale of his shameful deceit, he fainted and slid onto the, slid to the ground before the governor and the members of the gathered court, terror written all over his lifeless face and figure. Enoch Altschul was at once freed from his chains. The soldiers dispersed the waiting mob instead of leading it to attack the ghetto as had been their original plan. In commemoration of this miraculous turn of events, Enoch Altschul asked his people to celebrate Purim of the Curtains every 22nd day of Tavis, which is today the date when this incident took place. For more than 100 years, the Altschul family and with them the entire Jewish community of Prague observed this celebration faithfully and commemorated their salvation from the accusation of stealing the famous gold brocade curtains from the palace of the governor of Bohemia. An amazing story of a private or semi-private Purim that was celebrated to commemorate the curtains um, of Bohemia, of the Bohemian palace of the ruler, of the governor, as we have just heard. What a fascinating story linking us with a great rabbi, Rabbi Lowy, the chief rabbi of Prague, who actually made that golem. Now, if we go forward a couple of days to the 24th day of Tavis, which will be in two days' time, of course, on Friday, we have this uh, amazing date of the 24th day of Tavis, which is the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnir Zalman of Liadi.
Now, Rabbi Shneer Zalman was born on the 18th of Elul in the year 1745 in a place called Liozhna, the province of Mochilev in White Russia, which was part of Poland at the time. His parents, Boruch and Rivka, had three sons, all of whom were outstanding Talmud scholars and rabbis. Rabbi Shneer Zalman's father was a man of some means. He came from a family that originally lived in Bohemia and directly traced his ancestry to the famed Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, the Maharal of Prague. Rabbi was a secret follower of the Baal Shem Tov. And when Shneer Zalman reached the age of three, his father took him to the Baal Shem Tov for the traditional hair-cutting ceremony. That was the only time that Rabbi Shneer Zalman saw the Baal Shem Tov in his life, though he was 15 years old when the Baal Shem Tov passed away. It was the Baal Shem Tov's wish that Rabbi Shneer Zalman should find his own way to Hasidus. Until the age of 12, Shneer Zalman studied under the scholar, under a scholar of noble character, Rabbi Yisachar Ber in Lubavitch. Then his teacher sent him back home, informing his father that the boy could continue his studies without the aid of a teacher. During his early years, Shneer Zalman was introduced to mathematics, geometry, and astronomy by two learned brothers, refugees from Bohemia, who had settled in the vicinity of Liozhna. One of them was also a scholar of Kabbalah. When Shneer Zalman reached the age of a mitzvah, in accordance with custom, he delivered his first public discourse on the Talmud. He was acclaimed then as an outstanding Talmud scholar. He was thereupon elected as an honorary member of the local Chevra Kedisha and entered into the Pinkas, the register of the community, with titles and honor usually given only to mature Talmudic scholars. And the fame of this young Ilui reached Vitebsk, where one of its most prominent Jews, Rabbi Yehuda, Yehuda Leib Segel, a man of considerable wealth and scholarship, was the leader of the community, but he desired to have him as his son-in-law. Rabbi Shneer Zalman was only 15 years old when he married Sterna, Yehuda Leib's daughter. She proved to be a worthy mate who stood by him throughout his life. As was the custom in the better families of those days, the young couple was fully supported by his wife's father, by his father-in-law for several years, so that the young scholar could dedicate all his time to learning Torah. Before his marriage, Rabbi Shneer Zalman began to take an active interest in the economic position of his brethren. He had always felt that the towns and cities were too overcrowded to offer many opportunities, and that the more Jews could settle on the land and engage in agricultural pursuits, the better. In his younger days, he stood up on a wagon in the marketplace of Liozhna, where many Jews had gathered for the local fair and delivered a talk on the need for settling on the land. Now that he was married, in possession of substantial dowry, he created a special fund with the consent of his wife to help Jewish families settle on the land. A little bit more about Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi in just a moment. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We were going through a little bit of the life history of Rabbi Shnezaman of Liadi, whose yard site is on the 24th of Tavis, a couple of days' time. So being a very ardent student and gifted with a brilliant mind, Rabbi Shnezaman had become proficient in the entire Talmudic literature, all its commentaries and early and late postkim, the codifiers, before he was 18 years old. Soon afterwards, he decided to leave home in search of a teacher and a guide to help him attain a higher degree of divine service. From wandering scholars that passed through Vitebsk 
he had heard about the saintly leader of Mizrich, Rabbi Dov Ber, the disciple and successor of the Baal Shem Tov. It was said, in Vilna, you learn how to master the Torah. In Mizrich, you learn how to let the Torah master you. Rabbi Shnir Zalman made the momentous decision to go to Mizrich. This was a turning point in his life. When Rabbi Shneur Zalman was barely 25 years old, Rabbi Dov Ber chose him, the youngest of his disciples, to re-edit the Shulchan Aruch. It was 200 years since Rabbi Yosef Koro had written his famous work. During this time, much material had been added to the halacha literature, and it was Rabbi Shneur Zalman's task to examine and sift through all the new rabbinic material, make decisions where necessary in the light of the early codifiers and Talmudic authorities, and finally embody the results into a new edition of the Shulchan Aruch, of the Code of Jewish Law. Thus bringing it up to date, Rabbi Shneur Zalman superbly accomplished this task, which gave him an honor, an honored place among the great codifiers of Jewish law, and this work became known as the Rav's Shulchan Aruch, in distinction from its forerunner. Several years later, he began to work out his Chabad system of Hasidus, which he eventually published in his famous Likutei Amarim, or Tanya. Soon after the passing of uh, Rabbi Dov Ber, Rabbi Shneur Zalman became the leader of the Hasidic movement. And uh, he established a school of selected disciples in his hometown, Liozhna. Under his leadership, many well-organized Hasidic communities were established. He was a lover of peace, and he urged his followers to refrain from debates and quarrels with, his, with their opponents introduced many important ordinances to improve the standards of prayer and religious observances. He insisted that the prayers in the Hasidic communities should be recited unhurriedly and with devotion. He established the proper text of the prayers, the Nusach Ari, publishing a Nusach Ari Siddur in two volumes. The Nusach is often called Nusach Chabad. He insisted that Hasidic Shochtim should use steel knives for Shechita instead of the older wrought iron knives to ensure better observance of Kashrus. He introduced a warm mikveh. Two last-mentioned improvements, which at first raised a storm of protest in large parts of, uh, of some opponents, have eventually been accepted by all Orthodox Jewry. Now, it was well known uh, that the story of Yutes Kislev, he was slandered to the government and was uh, imprisoned. And on the day after Simchat Torah, Rabbi Shneel Zalman was arrested and placed in the Peter Paul Fortress in Petersburg that was in 1798. He was released from there on Yutet Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, when it was deemed by the Hasidic community that not only had the Rebbe been released or redeemed, but that all of Hasidic philosophy was now released and redeemed to be shared with the world. Be back with you to sum up right after this. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Now, the Yutet, the Yutet Kislev release of uh, Rabbi Shneur Zaman was not the end of it because the opponents of Rabbi Shneur Zaman were busy plotting against him again. False charges were brought to the authorities in Petersburg, and once again, Rabbi Shneur Zaman was summoned to the capital to defend himself and his teaching. This time, it took nine months or more until Rabbi Shneur Zaman won a complete victory over his slanders, his slanderers. But in the meantime, Tsar Paul was murdered, and the new Tsar, his son Alexander I, ordered the case dismissed. Rabbi Shneur Zalman then did not return to Liozhna. At the invitation of a prince, Lubomirsky, he took up his residence in the town of Liadi. 
which was one of the prince's possessions. It was in the idea that Rabbi Shneer Zalman spent the remainder of his life. But he was not destined to end his life in peace. In, 18, in 1812, Napoleon invaded, invaded Russia. And the invasion route read, led right through Russia, white Russia. And Rabbi Shneer Zalman, who had twice been accused of high treason, turned out to be a loyal patriot. He saw that if the French conqueror would conquer Russia, the economic position of the Jews might improve, but their spiritual position would suffer. And he therefore opposed Napoleon and urged his numerous followers to give their all-out support to the Russian war effort against the invaders. Indeed, his followers, many of whom found themselves behind the enemy lines, were able to bring very useful intelligence to the Russian generals. The Russians were grateful to Rabbi Shnir Zalman for it. When Napoleon approached Liadi, the Russian generals provided horses and wagons to evacuate the aging rabbi and his family and many followers. It was in the middle of one of the Russia's winters that the rabbi and his family found themselves on the open roads, suffering hardships and perils. In a village in the district of Kursk, the rabbi became seriously ill, and he passed away at the age of 68. His body was laid to rest in Hadich, in the district of Poltava. And that was on Chof Dalet Tavis, the 24th of Tavis in the year 5573. On his tombstone, it says, Here is concealed the holy ark, the great and divine Rav, pious and humble, holy and pure, diadem of Ariel, crown of the Torah, wellspring of wisdom. He practiced the righteousness of God and his judgments with Israel, and many did he turn away from sin. Our master and teacher, Shneer Zalman, son of Baruch, his soul rest in Aden, longing for holiness. His soul returned to God on the first day of the week, 24th of Tavis, in the year 5573 of creation. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week with more interesting, fascinating facts and stories on Judaism 101.9. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. 